Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. When you celebrate, when you celebrate, what makes for a good party? That's the first thing I put on my list too. I got it right there. Good food, man. Give me some examples. I mean, I know y'all are having barbecue in a minute, but what else do you like to eat? Come on. Tacos, chicken, dessert. That's right. Go for the sweet stuff right out of the gate. That's good. Uh, did anybody say good drink? I mean, you need to have a good drink at a party. You know, like an Arnold Palmer. That's exactly what you were thinking, right? exactly what you were thinking. I was thinking that too, mixing up iced tea and some lemonade, you know, come on, that's good. You know, Jesus liked good drinks too. You can read all about it in John chapter two. Um, it, who likes good people at a party? You know, you got to have some good people at a party if it's going to be fun. Can I take a minute? I want to show you some good people in my life. These are some good people right here. This is my family. Yeah, check this out. I I have four kids and this amazing woman here, with, which if you're looking at her going, how did she end up with me? There's a whole long story of God's grace in my life around that thing. Um, I wanted two kids. Yeah. We eventually figured out how that works. It, it basically means Lauren makes the decisions in our household, okay? She wanted four, so we got four. But that's Lydia, my 16-year-old. Sam is 13. Noah's gonna be 10. This is Mary, our six-year-old. And this is our little dog, uh, Ramona here from Beezus and Ramona. And they would have been here today, but they all serve on our dream team at our church. And so they're leading groups and large programs and all of that stuff. And they're like, Dad, we like you, but we like our role here too. <laughs> so they're all serving down the street. And I'm really thankful for them. These are good people. You need good people. You need good people in your life when you're having a party. But what we don't typically think about is we don't think about every good party has a purpose. Like when you're getting together, I mean, sure, you're, you're getting together to have, like have fun, but usually good parties, there's a reason and the food, the drink, and the people are all there to help celebrate the thing that is really meaningful. I mean, every marriage, every graduation, I mean, 4th of July, or maybe you're just partying that it's the weekend, which I get, you know, that's a reason to celebrate, but every party has a purpose. And so the question that I want you to think about with me today is what is it that makes heaven party? What is it that makes heaven celebrate? And here's the thing, you're probably thinking of some answers and before we get into the answers, I wanna explain why this question is so important. See, your soul was created to celebrate what heaven celebrates. It was created to celebrate that. And here's the thing, um, when you start caring about what heaven cares about, your soul comes alive. And here's the thing, you've seen it already. It came up and went away just for a second. But um, for those of you that get asked by granny later on this afternoon, like, hey, what'd you learn at church today? What I like to do is put a bottom line, like a single sentence that you can kind of, it's kind of catchy, you can carry with you. Like, if you don't take anything else out of this, this is the one thing I want you to take. If you're here with your parents and they're gonna ask you in the car, did you learn anything at church? Here's the cheat sheet, the cheat code to the service today, okay? Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this, okay? Oh, it's back here. 
it's over here. Your soul comes alive when you live in sync with heaven's vibe. Like your soul was created to be in line, to celebrate what heaven celebrates, to be, to match its vibe. And when you do that, you begin to experience internally some of the things that we are gonna experience someday in eternity right here and now. So, so it, that's why this is important because some of you, your soul is starving for it. Some of you, you remember it. You, you, you're already living it out. But my hope is to, you're gonna hear me say this a few times, I, my hope is to help you get your vibe back. And, and so let's just ask the question, what is it that makes heaven party? Is it worship? Uh, well, yeah, that's a good thing. Yep, is it going to church? For sure, I mean, yes. But is it obedience? That's important. Is it reading your Bible? I mean, I'm a big fan. I like to geek out on my Bible. Yes, that's part of it. Is it giving tithes and offerings to church? Is that what makes heaven celebrate? Well, those are all good things, but Jesus made it really clear. Jesus made it really clear what heaven celebrates, and I wanna share it with you today. It's in Luke 15, seven. He said this, in the same way there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Like Jesus made it really clear when heaven parties. And, and, and so the first thing you gotta look at there is like more joy. You know what that means? That means there's more party, there's more food, there's more drink, there's more people, there's more joy. You can keep that verse up here because I'm gonna play with it for a minute. Can you just say more joy for me? I just like hearing your voice, it sounds so good. There's more joy. When, when one lost sinner who repents and returns to God. Van, 99, who are sitting in church, singing, reading their Bible, worshiping God, obeying, giving their tithes and offerings. Now, if there's a part of you that's sitting there going, but does that mean God doesn't care about me? No, I mean, I feel that a little bit too, but the truth is, we already know what the glorious day feels like. We already have been called out of the grave. We already know that he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish. And so when we know that, we begin to experience a connection with our Heavenly Father. What, what does that mean? That means we begin to feel His heart in us, the heart that in 2 Peter 3, 9 says is patient, where He doesn't want anyone to perish. Like His heart becomes our heart. So if this is what truly heaven celebrates, why is it that so few Christians live it out? And I'm not, I'm not here to like finger point. I mean, this is true across the country. Barna, a, a national organization that researches trends within the church and outside of the church, um, interviewed some practicing Christians recently, and they found that only 47% of millennial practicing Christians, I'm sorry, 47% of millennial practicing Christians think sharing your faith is wrong. Wrong. 47, like, like that's half. Now, I'm not here to hate on millennials, okay? I got one foot in millennial, and I got one foot in Gen X. I'm kind of like the in-between here, and everybody's blaming millennials for everything. It, the survey goes on. Only 56% of practicing Christians, only 56% had two, I'm sorry, let's just put it this way. Half of practicing Christians had two or fewer conversations about faith in the past uh, 18 to 24 months. Two conversations about faith. Like, we're... 38% of practicing Christians have no non-Christian friends. 
So I wonder if part of the reason we're seeing a crisis of faith and challenge in church or maybe why some people feel so unsettled and restless and wondering where God is at, or maybe people feel so critical and cynical about what's happening in the world, is because we're not leaning into the things that creates parties in heaven. Like the thing that your soul was created to kind of vibe with, that it was gonna ignite a fire inside of you. Maybe, maybe part of the reason why it's a struggle Maybe even for some of you, it's because you lost your vibe. And it's easy to do, okay? I'm a pastor. The gravitational pull of the church, the our desire is always towards insiders, especially in a season of pandemic and political unrest and cultural unrest and all of the things that we, what do we do? We gravitate towards where we feel safest and most comfortable. And so the gravitational pull of the church, and this isn't just you, this is the church, and this has been about the church since the book of Acts, has always been to the already convinced. It's just easy. And so I don't want to lose a generation. I don't want to lose a generation in our community, in our city, beyond our city, and in our country. And so, um, and, and around the world, truth be told. And so today, I'm going to remind some of you of what you're already living out. I heard about it in your talk where you talk about the difference you're making in your community. But for some of you, maybe this will help you get your vibe back. Maybe some of that connection with God that you're craving. I'm not saying leave the worship and the Bible reading and all of that stuff, but there's something that comes alive when you celebrate and are part of what makes heaven celebrate. And so I need to warn you, this is not easy. And this is not comfortable. And it's gonna stretch some of us outside of our, what you could call holy huddle or spiritual comfort zone. It does me too. But you and I were put on planet earth for this time to make an eternal difference. And when you begin to experience that, man, we get to be a part of something that makes heaven sing. So if you're ready, say ready. ready. Yeah, come on, let's go. All right. So we're going to talk about three different things that I think help set the stage for heavenly parties. And I need to be clear. Does God do the work of spiritual transformation? No doubt about it. It's not our work. We are not the ones changing lives. But too often, we think it's the pastor's job, or we think it's God's job alone to be a part of it. And let's be clear. Does God do the work of changing people's lives? The answer is yes, you know that. But does he invite you and me, the church, to be a part of his redemptive plan? Yes. Like, there's a part of me off a conversation with Jesus. When Jesus was at the peak of his game, like right out of the tomb, when he was at his preaching best, like, hey, look at me, everybody, I'm back. He left. He was gone. And he looked at a group of ragtag disciples that half of them didn't graduate from high school, and he said, it's your turn, okay? And today he looks at you and me, and he goes, it's your turn. So let's sync up our lives with what makes heaven party. And so the three things that we need is we need to have a face of grace, we need to be a place of grace, and we need to live at a pace of grace. And I'll talk through all three of them. What was cool is I was getting ready, I was thinking about Jesus and um, uh, what is, uh, you know, how he lived this out. And the first thing that you read about over and over and over again is that Jesus had a face of grace. What is a face of grace? We'll start with face. What is your face? It's the first thing that people see when they see you. Your face tells a story. Your face Jesus tells a story. Well, and you may be better at hiding it than me, but God blessed me with 
these two lines right here that are lines of all sorts of confusion and concern because I can get real serious real fast and then my kids call me a Sharpe because I got all these little wrinkles up here, you know, when I get all excited. My face gives me away. Your face gives you away. It's the first reaction that you show to the people around you. So what is a face of grace? Grace is undeserved blessing or favor. And so the question is, what does your face say when it meets people who don't look like you, talk like you, vote like you, believe what you believe, worship the God that you worship? What's your face say? What's your face say? Because a face of grace sees every person as someone who has eternal, incredible value to God. Every person, not just people who look like me or believe what I believe, but every person. And so when the unbelieving world, if you were to ask the unbelieving world what face the broader church has had over the past few months or few years, what face are they seeing? I can give you a few words. I heard one of them, judgment, disapproval. It's like uh, uncompassionate. Like, we're just going to tell you what you are. We're going to label you as a behavior instead of seeing the person. Do you know what most common is? What I think is the church is just uninterested. We're just not even interested. We're looking the other way. We're looking for people who love our songs and love our whatever it is. I get it. I get it. The gravitational pull of the church is always in that direction. So let's just get personal. And I don't, I don't you know, just think about your own life. What face does your face make when you encounter somebody far from God? I mean, are you, are you interested in leaning in? I mean, here, let me tell you, I, what, what face does your church make? Here's what I would say it's been towards me. An, an outsider, even though we're a part of the same family of God, you have been so gracious. Your team has been so hospitable. This is what I love about Meredith and Phil. Both of them have been so gracious to me. And so, man, I know you have it, but when an outsider comes in, what face do you make collectively to them? In Luke 15, one, look at this. I love this. It says that tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Now, tax collectors, we don't like tax collectors. If you're part of the IRS, I apologize. Okay, I'm really glad you're here. I'm praying for you. You got a tough job, okay? But tax collectors back then, they were traitors. They were people who left the nation of Israel to support the invasion or the invaders, the traitors, the Roman Empire. They were hated by Jewish individuals. It was stomach-turning. It would be the same feeling you and I would have if the person sitting next to you decided to join ISIS or maybe more relevant, like to join the Russian army in the fight against Ukraine or something like that, right? It, it, just, it would be stomach-turning. Those were the individuals, those were the people that were spending time with Jesus. The other category is notorious sinners, right? And so notorious sinners, these are not the traitors. They're just looked down on. They're the failures. They're the people who couldn't live up to the Jewish ritual, the religious rhythms, and they were out of selfishness, out of laziness, or whatever. They rejected their heritage, and so they were just looked down on. And here's what's interesting. It says that these sinners often, not like one time, they were repeat customers, right? They came back again and again. They often came, meaning they went to Jesus. It wasn't Jesus showing up at the bar in their life, although that can happen, right? But the truth is they were showing up like, hey, let me put it this way. They liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them back. 
even though they didn't believe what he believed, even though they didn't live the way that he lived, even though they didn't vote the way that he voted, they were, in, were not just invited, they were included in what Jesus was doing. Why? Because Jesus had a face of grace. And if we're going to be a place that celebrates heaven's kind of parties, we need that kind of face. We need to live in such a way where the people who aren't like us, that are the notorious sinners of our day, feel like they want to kind of be around and that we want them around. And that's tough, right? I get it. Here's what I think is interesting. Notice Jesus doesn't stand up and say, hey, I love all of these sinners, but I hate their sin, just so that we're really clear on where I stand on these issues. In fact, it gets more complicated. He didn't make sure everyone knew that he wasn't condoning their behavior. No, he was full of grace and truth. He was full of truth in what he knew to be true, and he was full of grace when dealing with the people who mattered deeply to God. And this gets complicated. He was living out this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Are you thankful for that amazing grace? Because, man, I know I am. I know I am. Thank you. I mean, I never get an applause at my talk, so this is great. I'm feeling good already. Could go for hours. Okay. Here's what's interesting. Who, Who are the people? Who are the people that get uncomfortable with Jesus? I mean, I know you know the answer, but look at it. It says, this made the Pharisees, you could call that the church-going folk, the Bible-reading folk, you know, whatever. This made the Pharisees, I'm not saying you, okay, just so that we're clear. I'm just saying the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complained that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Like, how, how, how could that guy even party with them, man? Share a meal? Now, I know for you and me, we're, we're probably more tolerant of having meals with people who don't look and sound and believe and worship the way that we worship. But back then, that included a whole lot of things. Like one of the things that frustrated the church-going folk was that Jesus was actually a friend to sinners. Like he wasn't trying to be friendly. Like he had friendship with them. And that's, I, I know, I know it's tough, right? They're sitting there, the religious leaders, they're like, why isn't he calling them out? Why is he eating with them? They don't eat kosher. Do you know what kosher means? It's a certain dietary restriction that they still follow today religiously. If you've ever been to Israel, you've seen it. Like kosher is a big deal. And so to sit, to go to, go to a hotel that isn't kosher, they don't do it, right? It doesn't, it's not worshiping. It's not honoring the law. It's not honoring God. And so he's having meals with people who are breaking kosher? Like what? What? Like, they voted for Caesar. Like, they're a tax collector, and they're on Caesar's team now. Like, he's having dinner with them. Like, they're listening to certain types of music. They're watching, watching certain types of shows on Netflix. No, they didn't have it back then. But you get the idea, right? They're sleeping around with so-and-so, and Jesus is just, like, fine, hanging out with them. What is They were so confused. They would tell people, he isn't following God. He's following Satan. They accuse the Son of God of being demon-possessed. Think about that, okay? That's crazy. That's how uncomfortable they were. And what I love about Jesus is even with these self-righteous religious leaders, he has a face of grace. Instead of pointing a condemning finger and making them feel itty-bitty insignificant, do you know what he does? Next slide. So Jesus... Tells them or told them this story. 
Like instead of getting out his big old, you know, scroll and thumping it and pointing, he tells a story. And you know the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what does he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness to go and search for the one? Like he could have just roasted them. He could have gone like all Indiana Jones and made a fist grow out of their chest and slap them across the face and make it go back and be like, who do you think I am now, bro? (laughs) You know what I mean? But he didn't. He tells them a story. And the men in the audience would have related to the story. And not so much maybe for you and me. We don't like, you know, move sheep around. But in that culture, keep in mind, Israel's heritage is that they were a nomadic people. They were shepherds. That's how they moved. It goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? That's that's one of their cultural identities. They would have known that sheep are foolish. They don't know any better. That they require constant watch, and they're likely to get lost. It's easy for one of them to get astray. And so what do they do? They go and search for the one that's lost. It seems foolish to me, maybe to you, like I would rather just stick with the 99, okay? If I lose one, no big deal. I'm probably not going to find them alive anyway if I find them at all, right? It's not worth all the extra effort. But these guys, that's exactly what they would have done. And I think we forget that sheep were valuable. They had multi-dimensional forms of income. They had wool, which was important. They had longevity, meaning they would have, if they were female sheep, multiple lambs down the way, and that's like an increased uh, rate of return in their retirement portfolio. And they also bring lamb chops, which I think are delicious, okay? So they make for a good party. So, I mean, these things are really expensive. And so for them, they would leave the 99, and let's be clear, the shepherd would leave the 99 under the care of another capable shepherd. They wouldn't just abandon them. And the shepherd would go out to find the one. And so think about the face that they would have. The, uh, the face of grace is a distracted face. It's distracted by what's been lost. Not because the rest doesn't matter, but like, have you ever lost your keys or your phone? Does anybody have a missing phone today? Like you haven't found your phone? Okay, good, because otherwise you, I might, oh, we might have one lost phone over here. We need to pray for them, right? It's like, have you, ever, have you ever lost a kid? I mean, we don't need to talk about it, no hands, but have you ever lost a kid? You know what parents don't say? I got three out of four, I'm good, you know? That's fine, you know? No, no. If you've ever lost a pet, you don't go, I'll just buy another one at the store tomorrow. No, why? You're distracted. In fact, if you've lost something, there's a part of you that can, can struggle to even focus at work or at home. Why? Because you're constantly distracted trying to figure out where that thing that has been lost, are you distracted by the unchurched in your life and in your community? Like, are they keeping you up? Or is it just like, I'm not interested? You know, another face of grace is you're concerned. You care more than you criticize. And so when the shepherd goes out, he's calling compassionately to the sheep. He's not yelling at that daggum dung sheep, you know, where are you at? Why? Because if it yells at the sheep, it scares it further away. And the goal is he wants to see it come home. And I think sometimes we show up just, oh man, firing bullets verbally to the people around us, scaring them further and further away from the very one that they need to change their life and bring increased hope to our community, to their family and beyond. Are you concerned? Because that's the face of grace. You know what else shepherds have to do? They have to endure. Searching is hard work. And it means going until you find them. And so it requires patience and it can be messy and it can be uncomfortable at times. And you can be like, why am I out here? Am I making any progress? But when you find, 
what is lost. Well, look at what he says when he's found it. He joyfully carries it home on its shoulders like it's a trophy. And he arrives and will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I've found my lost sheep. Now, again, to you and me, you know, throwing a little party. I mean, I love it. Jesus is like, hey, the shepherd would throw a party, which seems weird to us, but they would. They would call their friends. Well, they would shout. I don't know how they did it. You know, send a telegram. No, they didn't do that. You know, whatever. They got their friends together and they threw a little party. Why? Because what was lost was found. And at this point, the religious leaders are wondering, like, why is Jesus telling this story? Okay, so the lost shepherd got his sheep. And without condemning and without shaming, Jesus comes to the point of this first story. And I've read it already. You can go to the next slide. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. He didn't look at anybody and say, you're not getting it. He didn't say you're a loser. He didn't say you idiots. He just told a story to help them do some of their own search, to go, hey, is your life syncing up with heaven's vibe? Because, man, your soul comes alive when you live in sync with heaven's vibe. Jesus um, goes on. I mean, he, he talks about uh, a face of grace. Um, uh, but he also talks about a, a place of grace. And what's, int- what's interesting about Jesus is he doesn't just preach this, he lived it. Uh, if you know in Matthew chapter 9 at the end of a long ministry run and I think this is about the same time um, or, or there's a similar encounter where uh, he wanted to get to the other side of the lake um, this would happen multiple times after his cousin John the Baptist passed away or was uh, murdered um, you know he went to the other side of the lake just to be alone with his disciples and when they get there there'd be crowds of people waiting for him it's like when you want to go on vacation and then you run into a whole bunch of work emails or text messages and you're like ah I can never get away from these people right and it says this in Matthew 9, 36. I love this. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, like they were lost. And when he arrived, he saw them he, and he had compassion on them. Like, like he realized he was there to make a difference. He could have been frustrated. He could have been impatient. He could have been annoyed. He could have turned around the boat and went the other way. But for you and for me, here's what that means. We need to see people as God sees them, and that's easier said than done. You need to see that every person matters to God, not because of what they've done or haven't done, but because of who God is. We need to uh, celebrate that in our face with them, not just in the songs that we sing. We need to get curious about their story, which means we need to ask more questions than give answers. This is what I love about Pastor Meredith and Pastor Phil. They just ask great questions. They ask great questions of us, and they're great listeners. Barna Research Organization found that people who have lapsed faith or do not believe at all, do you know the number one quality they look for in people that have a spiritual conversation? 62% of them say the highest quality, highest quality is somebody who listens without judgment, and the second highest quality is somebody who listens and does not force a conclusion. Like the unchurched world just wants to hear that we care about them. They want to see in our face that it's, it's okay to be here, that we have a face of grace. But the second thing is that we are a place of grace, which means it has to go beyond just what they see here, but it becomes an environment that they can step into. And what I love is Jesus isn't done telling stories. He tells another one. You know this story. He goes on. He says in the next verse, 
You can go to the next slide for me. Suppose a woman has 10 coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search for it carefully until she finds it? Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I, I, I kind of gloss over the details. I think Jesus is just adding some miscellaneous things to just kind of, you know, be a storyteller, right? But there's significance in what he's writing here. A couple weeks ago, you learned about the significance of the number 10, didn't you? 10 is a symbol of completion. Pastor Jeffrey Smith talked about this. And so she had 10 silver coins that were typically, most be, believe that was a part of her dowry, which was a, a potentially woven into a headpiece that she would wear at her wedding. And it would include these coins that were to be used to help establish their family together. It was not only a source of identity for her. It was a source of security. And so to lose one of the 10 coins wasn't like, oh, I lost a penny and I need to search the house for this penny, which we wouldn't get. No, this is like, this is embarrassing. Like she lost something that she was supposed to protect. And I know some of you, you've lost something. And when you lose something that you're, you're ashamed of, like trust with somebody or friendship or an opportunity, you, what do you do? You play it over and over and over in your head. And do you know that's what unchurched people do? They have been playing this tape of the embarrassing choices and mistakes they make and they are convinced that if they show up here and they knew and you knew, they would never be welcome. This coin also represents her future. And so what does she do? It says that she lights a lamp and she sweeps the house. A lamp brings light to dark places and a broom would sweep the dirt or uncover the thing. It would help clean. She creates a place of grace, a place where we can bring in the light to our mistakes and our shame, where we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Here's the way I like to say it. I think the church should be the safest place on the planet to talk about anything. It should be the safest place. Now, that doesn't mean, that's right, it doesn't mean the easiest place. It doesn't mean the, the, the um, uh, most comfortable. It can get messy. But you should be able to show up in any environment at church and be like, hey, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. And not feel like they're going to cart you out the door with their face in that place, right? It's like they're gonna, you're going to experience God's grace in that environment. Never once did Jesus say, go and clean up your life and get everything all right and then come and follow me. No, he said, come to me, all you who are weary. And too often we show up, myself included, trying to show everybody that we got it all together. I'm not weary, I'm not tired, I got it all together. And we don't, we don't talk honestly about our lives. And we don't allow other people to talk honestly either. He said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And so we need to create environments where we can say it's okay to not be okay. Christians and churches that are more concerned about looking the part rather than living in grace, it's a bad vibe. It's just a bad vibe. They're critical, cynical, harsh, arrogant places that I don't want to be a part of. <laughs> what is it that you and I crave? We crave a, an environment where you're loved and accepted with no strings attached. So in college, I was spiritually restless. I came to the University of Toledo, and you know, um, you go Rockets, that's right. If you're here from Bowling Green, we're praying for you too. We want to have a face of grace, okay? We want to have a face of grace. Um, I was not interested in God at all, and um, I remember showing up when, I st when God started getting a hold of my life before I ever showed up at church, I had baggy pants, big hoop earrings, spiky hair, partied all weekend and felt like I needed to go to church somewhere. And so I showed up at a, a, a church in our community. Um, and I just remember walking in 
And the faces that I got and the vibe that I got was, bro, what you doing here? I wrote in my journal, I've been here for two weeks and nobody's talked to me. I mean, that's, here, I mean, you think about the journey that some of these people are on in your workplace. You may be the only environment, place of grace that they encounter. In your neighborhood, in your family, and certainly in this house, in this house. So how do we do that? How do we create a safe, grace-filled place? Number one, you have empathy for the beginner. In, in other words, you, you don't use insider language all the time. You don't just use terms that you and I understand. It means you speak to them. I'll give you an example. If some of you are here today and you're exploring faith or you just uh, obliged a friend who's been inviting you to church, thanks for being here. And I want you to know that in this house, you are welcome to come and be a part of what they have going here regardless of where you're at in your journey. Regardless of where you're at in your journey. Like you are welcome here. And my hope is that as you start to get to know people, they're going to hear your story and they're going to want to know how you got to where you're at. At Cedar Creek, we have people who adamantly tell me they do not believe in God. They are atheists, but they love coming and being a part of our community, which blows my mind. It's like you, you can come and you're going to tell me you're an atheist, but you'll sing the songs or at least sit through the songs and listen to my message. And that, that's what it looks like to have a place of grace. Another one, you've got to have connection before correction. Bring a relationship before you try to bring some sort of adjustment. And we flip the others around. We try to bring the correction first, and then we're like, and then we'll be friends after you get your life cleaned up. No, no, no. No, I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your friend. And as we grow in that friendship, I'm going to say, hey, have you ever thought about this, right? Connection before correction. Uh, did you know that Jesus was uh, asked 186 direct questions, and he only answered three of them directly? He answered the rest of them with questions. He leaned in to build that connection. I mean, that's why the Samaritan woman, what did she say? She went back, what was her, do you know what her testimony was? Have you ever thought about this? Her testimony went, she went back to the hometown. She's like, I met a guy who told me all the dirty laundry I ever did. Like that was her testimony. What was she saying? I was able to be myself. And I was loved and accepted even more in the telling of it. That's what it looks like to be a, great, a, pla a place of grace. Uh, here's another one. Honesty beats perfect every time. I think we should thank people for being honest with us about their struggle. No matter how uncomfortable it gets or weird or whatever, thank you for telling your story to me. Here's another one that I like to say around the creek, and maybe you'll like it too. It's like, we should stop shoulding all over people. Should, S-H-O-U. Well, what did you think I was saying, okay? I mean, I know I'm from Cedar Creek, but still, we're in church, y'all, okay? Shooting all over people is when you say, you should be doing more of this. You shouldn't be doing that, right? God never speaks with a shaming should. Do you know what the name for Satan is? Accuser. So maybe sometimes that shaming should that you hear in the back of your mind, you should be doing more, isn't the voice of God. It's the voice of someone who wants to take you far away. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy heaven's vibe in your life. So when I was in college, my parents, who loved Jesus, um, grew up in church, weren't exactly excited about my choices that I was making. And so I'm at the University of Toledo doing what I want to do. And I'm not like hiding it. I'm not flaunting it, but I know they're not happy about it. And what my parents never did 
is they never backed up the dump truck of should. They never sat down and tried to correct. They didn't have to tell me that they weren't in favor of everything that I did. I knew that. But what my parents went over and above in that season that was very difficult, and they were very concerned about all the choices that I was making in this pivotal window, is they just continued to remind me of their love, that, that they were a place of grace. And you know what happened? A, a few months into my little journey, I hit a spot in my life where I, I just, I needed a safe place. And the first place that came to mind was just being with my parents. And it sent me on this journey. Why is it that I feel safer there than with my friends I partied with and with over here and with these experiences that I thought? And it sent me on a journey back to the very heart of our Heavenly Father. They were a place of grace. What happens when you go on that journey and you bring out the light and the broom, when you find it, you call your friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. You want to make the angels sing, participate in the things that make heaven sing. Get excited about looking for opportunities to be a place of grace that angels will look down and go, you get it, you got it, we're going to party with you. And when you you experience that, your soul comes alive. So we need to face of grace, place of grace, and we need to live at a pace of grace. Jesus isn't done storytelling. He goes on in Luke 15, 11, and he says, uh, at, to illustrate the point further, like, you know, he's, he's like, in conclusion, that's what a lot of pastors do. He's got another story to tell, right? Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, and I know you know the story, the prodigal son, right? He has two sons, and um, the father is asked by his youngest son to give his retirement up. And he does so graciously. The younger son is basically wishing that the father was dead. And like the foolish sheep, the son runs away and wastes it all in wild living. You can read about it in Luke 15. He loses it all. It's gone. It's just like that. He spends it and he has a time of his life and then a drought comes and he's working on a pig farm. And from a Jewish perspective, it's a dirty animal. And what is he, while he's there... He, he not only is like the lost sheep where he runs away, he now feels like the, lost, the woman with the lost coin. He's embarrassed and he has no future. And what he remembers is his dad, a face of grace and a place of grace. And he comes to his senses. He says, even the servants have it better than me. And so he returns home. He's rehearsing in his mind, God, or Father, I'm not worthy of being called your son, but I... I can't, I, I, I'm dying over here. Can I just be your slave? And I love what Jesus does. It says, while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And that's such a powerful statement. Like while he was a far, far away, the father was living at a pace of grace. It means that he had space in his life to see what God was up to. Pace is the rate or consistency with which you make progress, right? It's living in such a way where you can see God at work and you join him. You uh, start paying attention to what heaven is paying attention to. And so the father wasn't so worried about his livelihood that he became a workaholic to try to recapture what he expedited to his son. The father wasn't so bitter and angry and resentful over what his son had done that he sat there in disgust and contempt seeing him come down the road. 
The father wasn't so depressed and discouraged that he sat in his house and didn't do anything. No, he was at the road looking for the day that his son was going to come running. He lived at a pace so that when that day come, he was ready to run to him, right? And what does it say? He hugged him. He kissed him. He picked him up. It's cool. Lost sheep, party. Lost coin, party. Lost son, party. God celebrates when lost things are found. And so should you. So should me. Now it's at this point where I think the audience is like, okay, okay, we get it. We get it. God celebrates when lost things are found. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus isn't done at this point. He starts telling the story of the older son who's not partying. And I don't know where you're at today, but maybe there's some of you who haven't been partying lately. And the older son is out there, outside. He's lost his vibe. And what I love about Jesus is the father doesn't go out all angry. He goes out full of grace. And he says, hey, what's wrong, man? We're partying. And the older brother's like, he's a traitor. He's a failure. You're condoning his behavior. He should get what he deserves. It's not a face of grace. It's not a place of grace. It's not the pace of grace. And it's costing the oldest son everything. And even in the midst of the frustration, as Jesus is telling the story, the father says, look, you've always stayed by me. Friends, you're staying by your father. I hope you hear and receive that today. He says, everything I have is yours. Everything he has is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother who was dead has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Like he's like, son, don't miss what makes heaven sing. So I want you to zoom back out. You've got these notorious sinners gathered around Jesus who come time and time again, and you've got these religious leaders. At this point, everybody knows, I think, the point that Jesus is trying to make, and he's done it with dignity and grace for everybody involved. He's basically gonna ask the question that I want you to think about. Are you celebrating what heaven celebrates? Are you distracted by what heaven is distracted by? Or are you outside the party? waiting for something else. Jesus looks at you and me, the faithful in our community, and he says, your soul comes alive when you live in sync with heaven's vibe. And so my prayer is that you get your vibe back, that your soul celebrates that, that you create a space here at Cornerstone that's gonna reach people that quite frankly, Cedar Creek isn't gonna reach. They're gonna show up at this house and you're gonna have exactly what they need. My hope is that they experience a little bit of heaven here and that you help make heaven sing. And we're gonna do the same thing for the people who we can reach that maybe won't show up here. And then together, we're gonna to see God do great things in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families. And so I want you right now to just close your eyes for a minute. And I'm gonna trust God's spirit to bring to mind somebody in your life, one person, who God has put in your life to be the one. And it's a face, it's a name, it could be at work, it could be the one that drives you crazy. It could be somebody in your family, it could be somebody in your neighborhood, it could be somebody at school, 
Just ask God, who's the one? And then I want you to think about what does it look like to have a face of grace for them? What would it look like to be a place of grace for them? And what changes do I need to make in my life to walk at the pace of grace, to be ready to respond to what God has? Heavenly Father, make our hearts alive and passionate and distracted and concerned and willing to endure whatever we need to endure to help make heaven sing. God, we love to celebrate together as a family. And God, you celebrate those things. But man, what gets your heart the most is when somebody who is lost is found and our hearts come alive when we participate in that. So give us the courage and the compassion to keep our eyes focused on the one that you put in our life. Let us pray for them. Let us serve them. Give us a face of grace. Create a safe place for them to be who they are and to walk in such a way where we can serve them right where they're at. And God, I pray that you would bless this church, that this would be an environment that would be used by you to change our city and beyond. Bless its leaders, bless the volunteers who give their time, bless those who give, but God, give us a heart for what makes heaven sing. And we believe that when we do that, we'll experience your best in our life. And so thanks for graciously helping us get our vibe back today. We can't wait to see what you're gonna do in the weeks and months and years ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name.